Why is recorded in front of a live studio audience. But I've had some rough sort of situations with self-tanner. In that it, it gets stuck in the like crevasses my of your hand. hand? Is that what you're yeah. saying? Right, yeah, okay. Right there. I don't know what to tell you. I don't know, but I the, the, like the goth version of me is not pretty. <laughs> so let's just see here. I Heavenly Day Spa pops, pops up pretty quickly here. I I mean, I'm impressed that, I don't know if we talked to her about this, but it's pretty phenomenal that she got that name. That's true, yeah. I Um, mean. Check on Facebook, see what she's up to there. Because the. um, Let's see here. She's got a new phone. Happy Halloween. Don't be spooky. Wax your coochie. That's Um, awesome. I want a t-shirt that says that. (laughs) (laughs) This is Why, with your hosts, Heidi Hedquist and Luke Poling. And I I hate Thanksgiving. Like, I I can't What is there to hate about Thanksgiving? Oh, everything. Okay. Thanksgiving, all you do is sit around and eat. Yeah, but first of all... You're forced to eat the exact same meal. Everyone eats the exact same food. And two things with that. One, Mm -hmm. if you're the child of divorced parents who had Mm -hmm. to go to multiple sides of the family as a child, and then when you grew up, your significant other's family and your family both were very needy families that wanted everyone, not needy as in they needed support, but needy as in they wanted everyone to get together. Mm -hmm. You eat a lot of a very bland very boring mm. meal. Plus, even my mother, who's a phenomenal cook and has multiple ovens and multiple You're stoves, only saying that because she's listening. No, I'm not. <laughs> and and you, Heidi, we get cannot, it. You have a lot of stoves, okay? She cannot, you made that clear. She cannot get everything hot at once. So the meal's always cold. Something's right. always cold. And it's usually something that really shouldn't be cold. Plus, as the person in the family who has no children, does not cook... Cannot bring anything but booze or dessert to a family get together. What what exactly do you bring to the family table? A dessert and booze. But then Mm -hmm. you're always on cleanup duty. And it is by far the grossest meal to clean up after. So and that yeah, and then it's like the gravy. Everything about it. It's just gross. And things are all mixed together and everything's gross yucky. And then everyone sits around, but then the temperature in the house is never right because it's that time of year where it's not quite winter yet, but it's cold and gloomy usually. So no one's figured mm. out how their heat should be adjusted. Right. And there are too many people there. So you're like sweating, but you're in a sweat. It's horrible. I hate everything about but it. See, I think I keep telling my parents that I, because yeah, every time we go stay at their house, it mm-hmm. is. I am the Thanksgiving Grinch. That it's super hot, and I always have just attributed that to the fact that their bodies are slowly shutting down. But this is—you <laughs> think it's something? I've so, said it to their faces. I'm not like <laughs> saying this. My mother is going to be much happier with me than your mother with you right. on your comments on the, the show. Growing up in Liverpool, working there, did you ever go to the Cavern Club? Oh yes. That was many years later, of course. Right. Because that was, yeah, in the uh, 60s, I used to go to the Cavern Club. I've worked across town 
at a gambling company called Littlewoods Pools Football Pools, where people bet on football teams on paper and mailed them in. And I worked for the personnel manager in one of these eight buildings that Littlewoods had. And once we heard about the Beatles, um, they were very famous in sort of in England and uh, Sweden and whatnot before they ever came to America when the real fame began once they got on Ed Sullivan, you know. But uh, in the early days, yeah, I used to sneak out in my lunch hour and go across to the cabin, and it was a real scruffy, sweaty, smelly place. So had the band been to Hamburg at that point, or were they still... Oh, yes, yes, they used to... Well, the early days, they started... When you get to the second book, the one I've just published, it's got all the things. I can't always remember everything off the top of my head. Because I'm almost 91, and I get a bit bit plummeted, you know. I'll be 91 in five weeks' time. So I'm really capitalizing on that when I do anything wrong. I say, well, I'm an older <laughs> person, I can't remember. <laughs> but um, yes, they started going with the first alleged sort of manager that they had, Alan Williams. He ran a couple of little clubs locally and he booked them to go. And he said, let's take you to Germany. We go in my van. And they hauled this van up onto the ship and sailed across to Germany. Well, to France and then drove to Germany. Because he'd already done one or two bits of business there with other bands. And they were in these real scruffy little rundown bars. And one was a cinema, the Kino Cinema was the first place they played at. And um, when they got there, they found they were sleeping on just mattresses on the floor behind the screen of the cinema. Right. Oh, 10 hours at a time with maybe an occasional 15-minute break. But they all reckoned that that's where they began to realize if they wanted to be stars, how hard they were going to have to work and, you know, get themselves in shape. And, of course, they did eventually, especially when Brian Epstein came to the scene, you know. Yes. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about Brian and your experiences with him. Oh, Brian was a thorough gentleman. And I think... He was quite shocked when Alistair Taylor, who was his assistant, mm-hmm. uh, they, they worked at his father's uh, record store nearby. It was called NEMS, North End Music. And um, before that, his parents had had a couple of piano stores and a furniture shop. And then eventually, when this pop music started coming over from America, uh, the guys on the ships were bringing records home, and it was getting popular. So... Uh, the cabinet already opened by then, and the boys used to play lunchtime sessions, and they were really undisciplined. You know, they'd have bottles of beer and cigarettes in them, and <laughs> flirting with the girls and all that. And, of course, when, when you first went in, there were rows of chairs across, but once the kids came in, oh, to hell with that. They got rid of the chairs <laughs> so they could do the cabinet stomp, as they call it, you know. And it was, it was just great fun. And there was no booze, uh, no cigarettes, there's only soft drinks. And funnily enough, Scylla Black worked behind the counter giving us yeah. selling drinks. You know, she oh, my gosh. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> when you think years later. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Can you talk a little bit about how you first met Jim McCartney? Yes. Well, I was a widow with Ruth, whom you saw a few minutes ago. She was four when my first husband was killed in a car crash. And uh, times were pretty tough, you know. And one day, my uh, 
sister, Joan, who was five years older than me, she was in a shop in Liverpool in a grocery store, I think it was. And a man came rushing in. He said, uh, sorry to interrupt everybody. I'm late for a funeral. Where is Broad Green Cemetery? And my sister spoke up and she said, oh, if you go out of here and turn left and gave him the directions. And he said, you're not Angela, are you? And she said, no, but I've got a sister called Angela. He said, because you sound just like her. My wife and I used to have a friend called Angela with a little girl. She said, yes, that's my sister. So he gave her his phone number. He said, oh, I've got a rush. I'm really late. Uh, get in touch. So I did. I called them. And she turned out to be Jim McCartney's niece, Bet Robbins. And that was her husband, Mike Robbins. So it was just pure happenstance, one of those things, you know. And we got in touch and she invited me to come over and stay at her house on the other side of the Mersey from where I was. And I went with Ruth, put her to bed for the night and we chit-chatted and caught up on, you know, all the news from the old days. And she said, oh, you must come and meet Uncle Jim. And I said, why? Who's Uncle Jim? She said, you don't know about Uncle Jim's boys? I said, uh, <laughs> And she said, well, Paul is Paul McCartney, which, of course, was quite a big deal by then. Yeah. And Michael is Mike McGee yeah. McCartney, and he was in a satirical group called The Scaffold, mm-hmm. also making a name for himself. Yes. So we duly set this up, and uh, I went over to Beth's house one night, put Ruth to bed with her babysitter and all her clan, and off we went through the Mersey Tunnel to meet Jim McCartney. And I just knew when he opened the door, you know how it sounds crazy, but a light just goes on. Bing! I just knew that he was an, a really nice man, you know. And Paul had bought him this lovely house, Rembrandt, on, on the Wirral, which Paul still owns and stays there when he goes to Merseyside. And um, Jim was virtually almost like penned in because there were always fans outside the house. Oh, I'm sure. And he started with arthritis badly in his hands and his feet. And he couldn't drive. And he normally had been going for walks down to the the lower village. And he'd sometimes go to the Victoria pub and have a scotch and, and you know, chat with the locals and so on. But all of that, as the crowds got more and more outside the house, he felt absolutely penned in and marooned. And his two older sisters used to come over every Monday and change the beds and, you know, clean the house for him because he couldn't even take in a cleaning lady because of what they might you know, went up to right. pinch, mm-hmm. steal. Of course, yeah. And, uh, of when course. he sent laundry out, the shirts would come back with no buttons on them because everybody, oh, yeah, they cut all the buttons off because they thought Paul might have worn the shirt, you know. Right. All that kind of silly stuff. And some people used to come in the driveway and pick up hands of the gravel, you know, the little crunchy gravel that you drive over, take that away in case Paul's car had driven over that gravel. Oh, oh yeah, you couldn't imagine. So what was that like for you coming into that world as it was sort of bursting and sort of your life? So Jim and I talked about it that first night and he said, you can see, you know, Paul set me up nicely here and he's very kind to me, but I'm I'm sort of marooned on my own. It's a (laughs) trade-off. You think about either being my housekeeper or living with me or getting married. And I said, well, I'd only go for marriage with a four-year-old. Because I don't want people to think she was, oh, that woman, you know, living with that man. Right. <laughs> this is 1964, remember. So uh, right. he said, oh, okay. Yeah, that suits me fine. So uh, he said, you have to come on over and bring Ruth and, you know, let's get to know her. So uh, 
I brought Ruth over another night, put her to bed upstairs, and Jim and I were talking. And the phone rang, and it was Paul from London. And he said to his dad, um, well, well, I heard, first of all, I heard Jim say, yes, she is. Yes, I have. Yes, we are. From which I gathered that the questions were, is she there? Have you asked her? And is she going to? So, <laughs> and she come and speak to Paul. And of course, my knees were knocking, you know, I think, oh, my God. So went out. Of course, you didn't have telephones in all the rooms in those days. Either the phone was in the hall under the stairs in the little cubby. So I went out there and said hello to Paul. And he said, hello, you sound nice. And I thought, what? What a stupid thing to say. <laughs> as nervous as I was, having right. just acquired a new potential stepmother, you know, and stepsister. Yeah. So he said, well, if you're staying the night, I'll jump in the car now. I'm in London. So I'll be up in two or three hours because it took a long time in those days. The um, freeways weren't joined up at Birmingham. You had to go off and round round the house and get back on another one. So eventually when he did come, I was in the kitchen washing up some cups and saucers. We'd had numerous pots of tea and a couple of bottles of champagne. So he came in through the garage into the kitchen and he was all dressed up in a suit and a tie and brown uh, brogue lace-up shoes and all poshed up, you know. <laughs> and they, oh, hello, I'm Paul. And he put it, I said, uh, yeah, I think I know that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we went in the lounge and sat down and he said, so where's the baby? I said, well, at this hour, she's asleep upstairs in bed. So uh, I went upstairs and got Ruth and brought her down. He patted his lap for me to put her on his knee, which I did. And uh, she looked up at him. She was fast asleep. You know, she opened her eyes, rubbed her eyes and said, oh, I know you. You're on my cousin's wallpaper. <laughs> <laughs> but it broke the eyes. We all laughed and it was great. And then the next thing she does is pull up her pyjama jacket because she just had a kidney removed and she said look I've got all these stitches look and she's very proud of them (laughs) (laughs) and she uh, and he said oh Ringo's got lots of stitches too in his tummy and do you know who Ringo is and she said is he on the wallpaper (laughs) he's the one at the back doing that oh yes I've seen him she said so it really broke the ice you know and he was quite tickled I think to have a little four-year-old, almost five she was then, toy to take around, you know. So the next day, he jumped in the car with her and took her to meet Auntie Millie and Auntie Ginny and Uncle Joe and all the relatives in Merleyside, you know. And uh, he was always buying her things, you know. Yeah. Yeah, Once Jane Asher met her as well, too. Jane loved buying dresses (laughs) and little handbags. I think Ruth's still got one of them somewhere upstairs, yeah. She's kept one of us, yeah. Oh, anyway, Paul wasn't around when we got married because he had to be in London for a recording session or some commitment. But we went off in a taxi to North Wales where we knew the rector of one of the little churches in the little village. And in fact, he was the brother-in-law of Mike Robbins, who was late for the funeral who started the whole thing. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> then the day came, we got a taxi. Pick us up, and on the way, uh, yeah, driving towards North Wales, Jim just said, We're going to St. Asaph. Well, that's where we were going to pick up the license of the cathedral and then go over to this little chapel. So uh, he said to the taxi driver, Would you like to be best man at a wedding today? 
<laughs> they nearly drove off the road, this poor old guy, you know. Oh anyway, when we got there, we got the license, drove the other few miles to Carroll, where the church was, and by the time we got there, the press were there. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, also, um, Buddy Bevan, the rector, said, well, I would love my grave digger to be your best man. <laughs> romantic and exciting. So let, let the taxi driver out of his anxious situation. And they got Griff. And in Wales, they, they call people by whatever job they do. He was called Griff the Grave. They said to Griff, go home, run home and get your best suit on and come right back and you can be the best man. So Griff the Grave was our wedding, our best man at the wedding. Yeah. That's and Bernie's uh, wife, Mary, who was Mike Robbins' sister, she was the organist in the church, and she was so nervous about it all, and all excited, and the press turning up and all that. They never had so much activity in their little village. And uh, she, she was she played a Beatles song as we walked down the aisle. She couldn't remember the, the wedding march. She said, just gone completely. <laughs> the wedding march on the, de- the way out. So, yeah, we had something traditional. No photographs. Nobody had a camera. Mm. Yeah, I know the press did, but we never saw any of them. I'm comedian David Race in Los Angeles. I host a celebrity-filled paranormal talk show like no other. Monstrosity has great guests answering weird questions. You won't believe the combo of celebrities and paranormal experts who've been on this show. I guarantee you'll like Monstrosity, or you get your time back. Go to monstrositypodcast.com right now and take a look. What was it like? Did you ever, you know, was Paul there for Christmas? Were... Um, well, the first Christmas that we were married, he was living at the Ashes house, Jane Ashes family's house, until uh, Brian thought it was best for them all to get their own places down there because they were living, working so much in London and flying in and out of Heathrow. And um, so initially, Paul stayed with the Asher family and he invited Jim, Ruth and I down to London for our first Christmas. And um, yeah, Christmas 1964, we'd been married a couple of months then. And he put us up in a hotel. And on the first Christmas day, we had lunch at the Asher's household. And it was like, Something out of a picture book to me. A beautiful house, massive Christmas tree. I've never seen anything like it. And also, as you entered their house, uh, it was in Harley Street where all the uh, doctors and specialists have their, their houses and clinics and whatnot. And as you walked in, in the hallway, I had never seen so many books in my life. And it seems that Dr. Asher used to write books and publish books and do all sorts of he was a, a surgeon. In fact, he was the person who first coined the phrase Munchausen by proxy syndrome. Have you heard of that? Hmm. Yes. Yeah. 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 People make up stories about what's wrong with their children and all yes. that stuff. One thing I've heard Paul say in interviews that um, I know, I think this was before you had met Jim, but he said that uh, him and John used to write in the bathroom of their house because the acoustics were best. They used to in the bathroom yeah did you see james corden you know the english nighttime mm-hmm. guy 
went up to Liverpool last year to do a, a few spots with Paul. They went to 24th Lynn Road, which was the last ordinary house that Paul lived in with his dad and his brother. And they actually went in the toilet there because there were tiles on the wall and the acoustics were great. So they used and to record, you know, they didn't sit and write there, you know, they would write in the other parts of the house. Mm-hmm. But when they wanted to try vocals, they would always try. And I think John used to at his mother's house too, because for the most part, there were small spaces tiled. And of course, with the porcelain of the toilet and the sink and all that, and the bathtub, it just seemed to help to, you know, the, I don't know what the sound balance was like exactly in those days, probably vastly different to what we're accustomed to now. But, you know, they seemed to feel that they got the best out of it. Yeah, oh, it's very true that he and John would go and sing and strum the guitars in the toilet. <laughs> well, the thing I was going to ask you was, um, Paul said that him and John came out and said, we've written this new song and played She Loves You, Yeah, 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 to Jim, who said, yeah. It's a great song, but I think you need to set a better example for the kids and that really you should be using yeah, proper yeah, English. The, uh, the acetate that, home, in the middle of the night, and he's got herself out of bed to listen. And uh, what do you think? And Jim said, I think it's a great song, song but that, yeah, 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 business. I mean, you're not an American, you're English. It should be yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so you did say that, that's true. Oh, oh yes, definitely, yeah. <laughs> and funnily enough, when... Uh, um, February came around and the boys were filming Help and they went to the Bahamas and Jim said to me, you know, we've been married since November and we haven't had a honeymoon yet. Where should we go? I said, oh, I've no idea. So he got on to Alistair Taylor in the London office. Alistair was Brian Epstein's assistant. And he said, any ideas, Brian? He said, well, why don't I send you out to the Bahamas and you can watch some of the filming of Help? So we thought that was a great idea and off we went. And during that time, Ruth had her fifth birthday. And the chef at the hotel where we were staying was German. And he made her a cake with actual insect beetles on it. Yeah, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Huge fan. He was trying to say, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and have a camera. Oh, what a damn nuisance. Oh. Wouldn't have photographs now. So yeah. I mean, obviously anything to do with the Beatles is considered by so many to be sacred. And they're looked at these musical gods who never stepped a foot wrong. But oh, do you <laughs> but John was this guy who taught your daughter how to ride a bike. I mean That's right. yeah. how was he as a bike teacher? Was he good? I don't know. I was in the kitchen doing <laughs> I wasn't watching watching her going head over heels over the handlebars. I left them to it in the back garden. But, uh, yeah, she'd loved him. And he used to sit on the end of her bed at night and tell her ridiculous stories, you know, you know what kind of books he wrote and what her master words he was. And uh, she had a teddy bear, which she still has, by the way. It looks like he's been through several world wars. He lives on the chair upstairs in the corner of her bedroom, Mr. Ted. And he also wears a bow tie that used to belong to Jim, my late husband. And John used to get Mr. Ted and sit him on the bed and include him. Isn't that right, Ted, you'd say, you know, and involve him in the story. So Ruth has got happy memories of stuff like that. And Mr. Ted's been around the world with us. He's been to Russia and he's been to Australia. Yeah. All over the place. One other thing, I know 
I think it was George was a big fan of Jim's custard. And Jim had showed oh, you the yeah. secret to this. Oh, I know, yeah. What, oh. what, what's the secret? Huh? Oh, I'm not telling you the secret. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> to my house, I'll make it for you. Uh, that way. Okay, I'll be there Tuesday. Yeah. To take Jim up those make... invites. Oh, yeah. Jim could make custard that didn't have a skin over the top of it. It stays. Yeah, Fast. I know how to do that. It's very easy, but I'm not going to tell you. Paul apparently wrote Blackbird and then dedicated it to your mother. Is that the story? That's right. Yeah. Yes, he'd evidently uh, been working in the studios and came up to his dad's house, up to where we lived on Merseyside in the middle of the night, as he always did. And he came in and wanted to talk to somebody. And Jim, Ruth and I were all fast asleep. And my mum was staying with us. She was recovering from an illness. She was in her 80s and she had pneumonia and bronchitis a lot and so on. And Paul had said at one stage, why don't we send an ambulance and bring her through the tunnel and she can stay with you and it'll give your sister May a break and, you know, she can have a, you can look after her and make a fuss of her, which we did. And then one of these nights, Paul came home late and he was looking for somebody to talk to. He wanted to let off steam, you know, and he tapped on the, back bedroom door and he said Edie are you awake and she said well I am now <laughs> <laughs> so he went in sat on the bed and they chatted and he was saying how do you sleep and she said oh not bad but uh, when I can't sleep I sometimes listen to the, the flaming blackbird that sings all night and he said what blackbird and she said oh about now about midnight or one o'clock it starts to sing it sits on the roof of the greenhouse just outside in the garden so uh, Paul ran downstairs and he got his brother Mike's Grundig tape recorder. And it's a big reel-to-reel clunky thing. You remember those huge tape recorders? Mm-hmm. And those? Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. And he sat on the end of Mum's bed and opened the, the casement window wide. And sure enough, eventually the bird started its nightly concert. So he recorded it. And uh, that was the end of it as far as we were concerned for a long time. And eventually he went in the studio and wrote he'd been writing noodling with the song for a bit finished it off and in the studio on the actual studio tape which i still have he says this next one's for edie it's called blackbird and he did a couple of false starts and about the third time he said it each time and you know i still occasionally get it out and listen to it did you ever get down to london to see them work in abbey road oh yes well we used to go downstairs paul's house in cavendish avenue quite often and Mm. um because I had Ruth and put her to bed at night, Jim would go around to Abbey Road occasionally with Paul. But it wasn't far away. It was just a couple of streets away. And he'd go around and listen to them, watch them recording. Yeah, he used to come home and say to me, oh, we had some smashing cups of tea down there. <laughs> so he, he was more, more uh, excited about the tea than he was about the music. But, uh, <laughs> everything was so much different in those days. And... Uh, but no, I, I I know that he thoroughly enjoyed, and we went to see one or two concerts. When I say see, you couldn't hear anything. You could only see because of all the screaming. And right. you know, your ears would be throbbing for hours after. Your whole life story, you marry a guy, you, or you fall in love, you marry a guy, and you're suddenly whisked up in this whirlwind of fans and Beatles and love and hard days, nights and help. How would you say your life has been, having been spent in the company of the Beatles? 
fans of the Beatles? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I've made lots of friends all around the world, and I still have. Um, especially now with Facebook, I probably get maybe a couple of hundred emails at six o'clock in the morning when I get up. And I flip through them all and say, hi, nice to hear from you, and so on. And some of these are purely just Beatle fans, not my fans, but um, people that I've met around the world. And it's just gone on. And they've got married and had kids and grandkids, and now they all write to me. So it's it's made, uh, you know, for a bigger sort of range of contacts and interests and parts of the world and food. And, you know, we all exchange recipes and things like that. And, uh, yeah, this book that I've just done, it's um, a sort of day tripper's guide. It's about a lot of the places where tourists go, but a lot that they didn't know about because they weren't really terribly interesting from the press point of view. Places where they've lived mm -hmm. and bars where they used to go and, you know, places where they used to eat and all things like that. And during this present sort of lockdown, people have been writing to me and saying, when we can go traveling again, where should we go? So why don't you write another book? And I, we only started this in August and it was out by, I think, September the 30th. So Ruth and her husband, Martin, and I worked like crazy on this. You can pick up Angie's books, My Long and Winding Road, and here, there, and everywhere, anywhere you get your books. You can get her wine at mrsmccartneyswines.com. You can get her tea at mrsmccartneysteas.com. And if you want to watch T-Flix, her live weekly Facebook show, go to facebook.com slash Dr. Angie McCartney. You can follow us on all the various socials. Our website is whythepodcast.com and has all sorts of additional stories and videos. It's also where you can sign up for our newsletter. We're also on YouTube if you're into that kind of thing. And don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes. Because if you don't, we'll call your mother and tell her that she's completely right. You would look so much prettier if you smiled more. Why the Podcast is part of Mudhouse Media. Today's show was produced by myself and Heidi Hegquist. Our reluctant executive producers are John Sovey and Sandy Stone. Our willing executive producers are Rachel Allen and Randy Jeanette. Our graphic designer is Samantha Mustonen. The theme song was performed by the Electrosynthomagnetic Polyphonic Orchestra. This one's for Philippe. Thanks for joining us. Flash, we're coming home. Nigel, is that you? Are you here, Nigel?